as you're seated, can we give the band a round of applause? That was just amazing worship. Let's thank God for what he's doing in this place. Thank you so much. This is just a powerful time together. Welcome. Excited to see each and every one of you. I'm excited what God's going to do this morning. And uh, hopefully you grabbed a cup of coffee on your way in and you're ready to hear from the word and what God has to speak for us. Are you ready this morning, church? There we go. Some of us in the nine o'clock, we're a little bit more sleepy, so I just want to make sure we're here. It's a little bit overcast, but let's not that, let that affect our spirit and our posture towards hearing from God. I believe that our expectation sets our experience. I have a big expectation when I go to Disneyland that I'm going to be happy, all right? Now, the only reason I'm not happy is when my expectation does not match my experience. Some of us don't come with an expectation to church. And so since we have no expectation, we're like the experience was, eh, it's all right. But those that are hungry for God, the Bible says, they that hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. This morning, you can be filled with God if you're hungry. But if you've been snacking on the word, if you've been snacking on the world and snacking on sin and snacking on other things, you're not going to have an appetite for what we're going to talk about this morning. But if you're saying, you know what? You're right. I need to get hungry from the word, for the word. Because too often I find that we come in and we make the preacher do all the work because we haven't done any preparation. How many know a good farmer knows if he's going to have a good crop, he's got to till the weeds out of the crop. He's got to kind of make sure the soil is prepared. And if we're just waiting to Sunday for the preacher to give me my little preacher fix, we're never going to grow spiritually. If we're going to grow spiritually, it's going to happen because you and I, Monday through Saturday, we're working the dirt. We're working the ground. We have groundwork to do. It's a ground game. And if we're just waiting to Sunday morning to open up this Bible, then we're missing out on all God's blessing and his riches that he has for us. Do you hear me this morning, church? I'm getting excited. I haven't even gotten into the message this morning, okay? Okay? I believe God's got a word out of Daniel chapter number five. So we're going there, but before we get there, we just have to brag on God for a little bit. Last week was Mother's Day, and didn't we have a good Mother's Day? Wasn't it great? Moms, I hope you felt special. Here's what I loved about our church is the fact that our church was able to help and bless 30 single mothers last week. That's just awesome. I just love that. There were sing- 30 single mothers that they came, they received a gift, they received a rose, they got a family picture, they had a great great time because of our church. Also, the best part, my favorite part, is that six people gave their life to Christ out of a Mother's Day message. That's just awesome what God can do. We celebrate lives change. You say, well, why do I go to this church? Why am I part of it? Because we're a church. Every week, we have an expectation that God's going to change somebody's life. God's going to change somebody's life. God's going to fix something. God's going to heal something. God's going to mend something. That's the expectation. So write that down. Put it down that my expectation sets me up for my experience. Now, let's jump into the message this morning. All right, Daniel chapter number five. I was studying, preparing this message, and I began to think back when I was growing up. I would go to a summer camp each and every summer. And if you go to a summer camp for a week, you get away. I would go to a Christian summer camp. That's what we would do, and it was usually in the middle of the summer, sometime between the end of June and before August. I would go to a summer camp for a week, and it was kind of like vacation for my parents to get the kids out of the house. So they would send us packing to camp, and so we'd go to camp. And I went to this camp called Ironwood. Ironwood's in the Mojave Desert. You say, that's a horrible 
horrible, horrible place to send your children. I know, but my parents did it, okay? So uh, they sent us there, but this camp did have a little lake, a little man-made lake that they had. And so we'd go out there, and we'd swim in this little man-made lake. And at the back of this little man-made lake, they had this raft. And we had a little game that we would play. Because when it came time for swim time, we would run out to this raft. And man, the first one on there, they got to be the king of the raft. And anybody else that got on the raft, you had to wrestle to stay the king. And so, man, I was small. I still am kind of small. And so, what do you mean, kind of? I just, I, I am. I'll just own it. How about that? And uh, I would swim out there as fast as I could, get on the raft. I'm like, I am the king. I am the king. Some bigger kid just throw me over. It didn't last long, but I was the king for a moment, all right? I, I had my moment in the sun, and we would wrestle. Kids would get thrown off and everything, but the, they, they had this, like, special carpet they'd put on top of this rug to get some traction or on top of the raft. Man, you'd get a bad carpet burn, and it was great, you know? Just the blood in the water. It's just just camp stuff. We had a good time. I remember one time I got thrown off the raft, off king of the raft, and I got disoriented while I was being thrown. And so when I got disoriented, I started to come up for air, but you know how you're disoriented, not sure which way is up or down or where you're going. I come up for air, but I come up under the raft. And immediately I start freaking out because there's nowhere to breathe. I'm just stuck under this raft, but this raft's not chained down. This raft is moving. And so anytime I try to get somewhere where I could get some air, all of a sudden it just seemed like the raft kept going on and on. At that moment, there was nothing I wanted more than air. I don't care about your fancy car. I didn't care about your big house. I didn't care about a big bank account. I didn't care about marrying somebody beautiful, having a wonderful family. I just wanted air. It's amazing how your priorities shift when you're in extreme circumstances. You just want air. So what I did, because I needed air so desperately, the boys that weren't on the raft, you would hang on to the side and you'd wait for your turn to wrestle the king. And so they would be hanging on there. So I'm trying to get air. So all I could see in this lake was just these little dangling legs. So I started grabbing onto something because I'm drowning here and I need some air. How many know when you're desperate, you'll grab onto things? Some of you, you're so desperate for a relationship, you'll grab onto a toxic one. Some of us are so desperate for satisfaction that we'll grab onto alcohol, we'll grab onto drugs, we'll grab onto maxing out the credit card because we just want to feel something. We just want to fill the void. Some of us have gotten into bad business partnerships. We've made some foolish decisions. Why? Because we were drowning and instead of getting what we needed, we were going after something else. And that's what our emotions can do to us. Our emotions, when they're not put in check, will make us want to grab onto things that they can't sustain us. That's why only Jesus can actually sustain us, satisfy us, and fill us with what we need. And so in this series, we've been looking at how to manage our moods without our moods manipulating us. Because too many of us, we go through life based on how we feel. Some people go to church, not y'all, but some people go to church when they feel like it. Not you all, but other people. Look at the empty seats. Those are the ones that are in bed right now saying it's a little bit overcast. And my coffee sure smells good. And oh, look, golf's on. Like, for real, you're going to stay home and watch golf? I just don't get it. I don't get it. All right? And uh, so they just found something to get comfortable by. And I find that today we live in a culture and a society that we just want what I call a fast food joy. We're not looking for true significance. We just want something real quick, something that just kind of tastes good. doesn't really do a whole lot for you, but we're just looking for it because we had this stress. We got this anxiety. And so 
we're human. We, we cope with it. But how do we cope with stress? And what causes our stress? One of the things that causes our stress is maybe the passing of a loved one can cause emotions and traumatic and stress. There also can be confrontation. Sometimes we, we, we have have this stress because we know we got to confront somebody or a situation and that's causing stress. Maybe you're a manager or an owner or a boss here. And you know, this week you have a conversation you have to have and you're not looking forward to that conversation. So it starts the anxiety. Even right now you're thinking about it. your pulse rates climbing a little bit, hearts beating, palms are getting sweaty. Uh, another thing is that cause stress. The marriage can cause stress deadlines. Uh, it's almost the end of the school year. So students, they got finals coming up and all their deadlines that are happening, that project, they had nine months to do it, and now it's got to be done tomorrow morning. And uh, I loved it. I went to my kid's school, and uh, uh, my son Austin goes to uh, Pastor Wes's wife's class, Miss uh, Craig. And uh, I love it because they, they turned in their sheets, and they said, man, we loved our projects. Thank you, parents. I was like, thank you, finally. Because you know, in elementary school, those kids did not build that rocket ship, that volcano, or that oasis. The parents did. And the parents didn't know about it until about 9.30 at night the day before. Do I have a witness? Okay. All right. Yes. Amen. We should just park it right here and preach against our kids. All right. So I appreciated that the school recognized the parents for doing the work. And I turned to my wife and said, wife, thank you for making the project. Because I didn't do it. I certainly didn't do it. Jane did it. So we, we can see deadlines cause problems. Legal problems, those cause anxiety. Job loss, around here we deal with traffic, terrible traffic. Uh, Divorce, new job, retirement, money problems, illness, parenting, pace of life, expectations of others. All of these cause to our stress. They cause our anxiety, our depression. All these are triggers. But the one that's got me down the most this week, the most serious of them all, and the one that we got to get settled right now, we got to deal with. This is the one that's caused me the most anxiety, the most stress. Is, is it Yanni or Laurel? Like, which one is it? Like, we got to figure this out. Right now, I can't, I can't go the rest of my week not knowing. How many? It's Yanni. It's Yanni. It's Yanni. Okay. Yep, there we go. It's Laurel. How many of you heard Laurel? Oh, the Laurel's having this service. Yanni had in the first service. Now, am I messed up? Because the first time I heard it, I heard Yanni. And then the second time I heard it, I heard Laurel. Did anybody get that? Was that you? Oh, a few of you. Yes, there's a few of us superhumans in this room that we got both, okay? So it's just one of those debates. If you're like, I don't know what Yanni and Laurel is. Can I see your hand? You don't know what Yanni and Laurel is? There we go. We got a big group in there. Okay, so just go home, get on the interwebs, and figure it out. It's pretty funny. It's pretty cool, all right? So you'll have to check it out. But we've got these things that they cause stress, and we're looking at this character of Daniel. And we're in Daniel chapter number five because we're learning that feelings are indicators. They're not Dictator. So in Daniel chapter number five, last, last week we had Mother's Day. Week before that, uh, our student pastor, John, took care of Daniel chapter four. From Daniel four to Daniel five, there's been a 21-year gap. And in that gap, there's been three other kings. And we're going to meet a new king in Daniel chapter number five. Let's pick it up in verse number one. The Bible says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them, goblets, And and while the king was drinking wine, he gave orders to bring in gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that they had taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, 
wood, and stone. No mention of the God of Jehovah. Verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak. His knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voice of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence, wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because whom the king called Belteshazzar was found to have, been, have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you, what the writing means. We see that God's hand miraculously shows up in this story. I once showed my children a Bible series that they did a cartoon dramatization of this, and this part gave them nightmares. They woke up in the middle of the night, and they just said, hey, I'm having nightmares of this hand. And just imagine that this hand out of nowhere just starts writing on the wall. I call this God's graffiti. All of a sudden, God's hand just shows up, and he starts writing. Now, many of us, we want a word directly from God, but here... This king, he gets a note directly from God, and God starts writing it on the wall. And at first, I thought, maybe this is the first time we see God's hand writing something. But here's what I've learned, that God's hand has been evident throughout history. That God's hand is evident throughout history. That there's no point of our nation's history and the world's history where you can't trace God's hand. You can think back on your story and you can look back and see where God's hand was evident in your life. Where he was directing, where he was leading, where he was allowing things. God's hand was always there. You and I, when it comes to our emotions, we want control. We try to control situations. We try to control events. We even try to control people. But when it comes to control, God's hand is the one ultimately controlling everything. Now, in this passage, we see that history records some things that are happening in the nation of Babylon. First of all, the nation of Babylon is in chapter 5 experiencing its demise. It's about to go under. The king Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he saw a statue. The head of that statue was gold. The body was silver. You see, the golden age of the Babylonian Empire is about to end, and the silver age with the Medo-Persian Empire is about to happen, and it's going to happen on this evening. And so this king doesn't know his life is about to end. This story is about to be finished. But God knew. God knew exactly what he was doing, what he was allowing, and what was happening. And so instead of this king preparing, for this invading force because this invading force had surrounded the city. They thought, we're in the city. There's no way they can break in. And so what does this king do? While there's enemies at the gate, he has a party in the palace. 
And then once he starts his party in the palace, they get drunk, they get tipsy. All of a sudden, he has this bright idea. Hey, remember how we conquered the Israelites? Let's go get those golden goblets. Let's drink out of those. We had victory over that empire. We're going to have victory over this empire. But the Bible says God doesn't mock, doesn't allow mocking at sin. God doesn't put up with it. Sometimes we think that God will just wink at our sin. No, no, God doesn't. God sees it, and God wants us to deal with it. And so God puts some handwriting on the wall. So when it comes to understanding what God is doing, we have to see that his hand is there. But yet when we don't recognize God's hand at work, we start to worry. We start to worry about situations. Will we make it? Some of us here this morning, here's what you're thinking, because I've thought the exact same thing. You're thinking, if I could just deal with this one problem, If I could just fix this one situation, my life would be so much better. Right now, think of that problem. You all have one. It could be if I could just pay off the mortgage. If I could just take care of the student debt. If I could just fire that employee. If I could just fix my relationship with my children. If I could just, and you've got that one big thing that if you just had this, if you could just fix this, then everything would be better. But here's what I've learned. I'm not very old, but here's what I've learned. As soon as I deal with one problem, there's another one already on its way to take its place. And it doesn't come solo. It likes to bring a buddy. You got in those problems that have friends? How your friends brings their friends over? You're like, I didn't invite you to bring your friends over, okay? You didn't, no, 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 it's not, this isn't, didn't bring the whole gang. And so we think that, God, if you would just take care of this one problem, that I'll be okay. You see, God wants to give you a better perspective. God wants you not just to focus on the one problem. He wants you to see that, God, you've got this. You're in control. God, you're going to take care of the finances as I trust you with my proper stewardship. God, you're going to take care of my children as I raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. God, as I love my spouse, you're going to take care of our marriage as I am faithful as a husband or faithful as a wife. God, you're going to do your part. God, as I try to be honest and forthright and kind and diligent in my job, you're going to take care of me financially. That as we do our part, God does his. Sometimes we come on Sunday and we think, well, God's got to do this for me, this for me, this for me, and this for me. And you're missing out the fact that God's saying, no, 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 you're my human element. I work through you. You see, we're the channel. We're the vessel that God wants to use. And so God is saying, hey, don't worry about it. Because what does worry do? Worry is simply bringing tomorrow's problems into today's possibilities. That's all that worry does. It really wrecks your possibilities for today because you're missing out on what could be because you're focused on what might be. Let me say it again. You're missing out on what could be because you're focused on what might be. Because there's a lot God wants to do, but if you're not present to see it, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out on all the things God wants to do. Sometimes we miss out on what God is doing in this church because we didn't come. We weren't there. We didn't experience it. And God wants to do something. Sometimes we miss out on God's word because guess what? I don't know if you know this, but you don't have to wait till Sunday to open your Bible. Shocker. I know. Um, You can open it tomorrow. You can. And, and, And guess what? God will speak to you. He will reveal his spiritual truth to your life. Hey, you can have great communion with God. Hey, you can turn on Caleb and you can have a worship service in your car. I don't know if you know that. You can have a moment with God at any moment. You can. So stop worrying about it and understand that God, your hand's been throughout history and your hand is going to be at work right here and right now. You see, worry is to rehearse the problem without a solution. That's what worry is. It's to focus on the problem and to never think about the solution. But understand that God always has a solution. And in this story, God has a solution. His name was Daniel. 
And this queen, the queen mother comes in verse number 11, and she says to the king, hey, there's a man who can fix your problem. Here's what's interesting. I love the book of Daniel because this is the third time this has happened to Daniel, where there's been a problem and Daniel was called for. Don't you want to be the person that when there's a problem, they call for you because they know you've got the hand of God in your life, that they know that you hear from God, that God works through you, that God speaks through you. That's the type of person that I want to be. I want to be the type of person that, you know what? I hear from God and God can speak and work through me, that there's a relationship there. So they call for Daniel. Now, here's what's interesting. The culture of Babylon is deteriorating. It's shrinking. It's getting smaller. It's getting weaker. There are enemies at their gates. They're about to take over. They've been taking land and yet this country is morally decaying but yet Daniel is not being swept up in that he's over 80 years old but Daniel is staying true to his calling he is not compromised he is staying committed even at 80 years old Daniel is still being faithful you see culture around you can be deteriorating but that should be the mark of a Christian that we are still thriving while everybody else is deteriorating, where we say, you know what? God's just blessing. God is doing something. I'm faithful to him, and he's providing that I don't have to go with culture. I don't have to get stressed out like culture does. I don't have to be bombarded by all these negative emotions because I have a God who says, hey, don't be filled with these things, but be filled with the knowledge of him. That's what God wants for us. So we see that God's hand in history, but then when it came to Daniel, I love it because Daniel, it would seem like this would be a stressful situation. You're called before the king. The king's a little bit tipsy. How, do, how many of you know in that day, in those world powers, you could easily lose your head if you said the wrong word in a moment like this? And so some of you, you get called in for the boss. You get called in from a difficult situation, and that'll cause stress in you. I wonder why Daniel wasn't stressed. But then I remember, this is the third time he's been here. It always helps to deal with stress when you know you've been there. You see, I don't need a map to drive to my house in Fresno, my parents' house. I've been there before, so it's not stressful. But when I go somewhere new and I don't have a good map and Google Voice is messing with me and sending me in the wrong direction, which sometimes the demons of hell get into my Google Maps and they will turn me in wrong directions. And so when that happens, I get nervous and I do this weird thing. I tell everybody in the car, be quiet, as if that's going to help me. And I turn off the radio as if that's going to help me find the streets, you know. We get, we get real anxious. Why? Because I'm trying to find my way because I haven't been there. Daniel wasn't nervous. Why? Because he had been here before. He wasn't stressed out because he had been here. Now, you may not have been through this circumstance, but our God has been through this circumstance. The Bible says we have not a high priest who is not touched, uh, who does not sympathize with our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, that he sympathizes with us. Jesus has been through this before, so we can trust him and we can say, God, you've been through this before. I don't have to be afraid. So Daniel stepped into this moment because he knew God's hand in history. Secondly, we see that this is not the first time God's hand is evidently writing. You say, where was the first time? Exodus chapter number 20. There's a man by the name of Moses. He's on a mountain and he's speaking with God. And God takes two stone tablets and the Bible records in Exodus 20 that God with his own finger began to write the 10 commandments. He began to write what we call the commandments for our conduct. 
You say, what do you mean the commandments for our conduct? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not destroy. Thou shalt not worship a false god. Thou shalt not covet. And on and on and on. We have these ten commandments. What are these commandments? They're the commands for our conduct, how we should live. How many know things that happened in Texas on Thursday probably would not have happened if we had a bigger emphasis on the commands? If we went back to some of the things that God in his word said... And if we taught them, and if we started living them, and started to apply them. You see, we're in a nation now that's very much like Babylon. We're deteriorating because we've lost our commands of conduct. And I find too many Christians, we're looking for fast food joy instead of the joy of the Lord. You see, there's a joy, there's a peace that God has that he says it passes understanding. It's a peace and it's a joy when everybody else looks at you and says, how do you have such a joy? How do you have such a peace? I just don't understand it. You say, that's right. It's from God. It's divine. It's from above. And so we only get that by feeding on God's word. So we need to feed on God's word. That's where we get this commands for our conduct. That was the first time God wrote it out. And then in Daniel 5, this is the second time. But the first time was God giving commands. The second time is God giving judgment. It's God's judgment. But he starts it off with a warning on the wall. You see, God gives this warning on the wall to these people. He writes on the wall. He writes this word in an unknown language. It was meeny, meeny, tickle, you farsen. That was, that was the word. I know many of you thought I was going to go any, many, miny, mo. No, no, it's meeny, meeny, tickle, you farsen, okay? And we're going to get into what it means. But God says, hey, I've got a warning for you. And I think this is what God has got for us this morning as we look around and we see that there's all this stuff happening. You see, they were throwing a party while enemies were at the gate. And they started to get into some unhealthy things. I remember I worked at a college in Lancaster, California. And it's in the Mojave Desert. And just outside of Lancaster was another sprawling metropolis called Lake Los Angeles. I'm still looking for their lake. Not so I can be king of the raft. I'm just looking for their lake. It's in the middle of the desert. There's no lake out there. And uh, I would run what we would have called a bus route. And we'd pick people up on a Sunday and we'd bring them to church. It was just a small little community, maybe 1,300 people, not real big. And we'd drive out there. But one of our stops where we'd pick up children, I remember going to their house because there was something unique about this house. When you'd walk up to their door, there was handwritten Bible verse covering the doorposts of the door. And then you'd walk in the hallways, there was more handwritten Bible verses on paper just stuck to the wall everywhere. Bible verses. And it was, when you talked to the parents, they said, we just want our kids to know God's word. We just put it everywhere. And it was everywhere. And you see, that's God's way of saying, hey, I'm giving you a warning. I'm giving you this, this warning where you can see it. I don't want you to forget about it. And so God writes it on the wall. But what does he do? He partied. He was missing a moment because of the moral decay. You see, private compromise will always result in public collapse. And I think we forget that in the church. I think sometimes we come to church and we think that I can live however I want to and it's not going to have any consequences. This week I got two phone calls from pastors who had had affairs. And I was so heartbroken because they told me, well, it happened a long time ago. I was saying, but you covered it for how long? You just thought it would never come back to bite you? You just thought it wouldn't affect your relationship? You just thought you could get away with it? 
You just thought that, that wouldn't, God wouldn't bring it up. There is a law of sowing and reaping. Galatians 6, 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. He that sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. You see, there is something that we've sown that we're going to reap a harvest because we've sown those seeds. And when those men called me and I spoke to them, I was devastated for them. I was hurt for them, what they were going through. But I said, hey, this is the bed that you made, and I'm sorry, you've got to lie in it. Now, I'll pray with you. I'll support you. I want you to get the help that you need. But understand that God is not mocked. When you give in to this private compromise, no one will know. Guess what? There will be a public collapse. And this is something where the church needs to take serious. Because I think too often, church kind of has this emphasis where, hey, it doesn't really matter how I live. No, it does. We're to be salt and light in this world. That means we're supposed to be a difference about us. There should be something. What really upset me was that they not only broke apart their families, but that they brought shame to the name of God. That they broke apart his church, his institution, and they did something to hurt it. That breaks my heart. As we're here doing all we can to get people to see churches something that is good for the community. It's a way that we share God's love and they're there tearing it down. It's like building a sandcastle. You're trying to build it on the beach and here comes the tide washing it away. You're saying, man, I just did all this work and there it goes. And so for us, we've got to say, God, I want to be right for you. I want to live right. See, also, he, if you live for the truth, you won't lose with a lie. You see, he didn't decide to live for the truth. He thought, hey, our forefathers, they stole these goblets. I'm the king. I own it. I can, I can drink out of them. I can do whatever I want. And I think sometimes we get in positions where we think, well, I don't care. I'm just going to do my own thing. And we sin with impunity. And I think too often we don't think that God sees that. We don't see that, wait a minute, God sees that sin. God wants us to deal with that sin. You see, the first handwriting was our code of conduct. The second handwriting was a wall, was warning on the wall. Will we see the warning or are we just going to simply step back? Now, here's what's interesting about this passage. Daniel shows up and he does not immediately interpret the writing. You say, what do you mean? You see, Daniel shows up in verse 12, but verses 13 through verse 22, Daniel starts telling this king a story. Do you know what the story was? It was a story based on Daniel chapter 4 of what happened in Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar was lifted up in pride, at that moment, God took his mind from him and made him like an animal because of his pride. And that brought him down. You see, God said to this king through Daniel, look, you knew this. And here's what I want us to see. Verse 22, turn your attention there for a second. He says, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Here's what gets me. I look at the church today in the United States, and we do not have a knowledge problem. We have an obedience problem. You see, the church today knows more than any other time in history. Did you know today we say read the Bible 2,000 years ago, they couldn't read the Bible. Uh, 1,200 years ago, it was illegal to read the Bible. It was in Latin. You had to become a Catholic priest so you could read it. It was illegal for the common man to own a Bible and to read it in his own. His own. And so now we have this. We have, we have the Bible in, 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 in our hands. We have the Bible on our mobile devices. We have more of God's teaching on television. Right after Saturday Night Live, Andy Stanley gets on so you can stay tuned. It's all over TV. I looked on Netflix and I see all my favorite preachers. They have their, their uh, preaching sermons on Netflix. It's everywhere. But why is our country experiencing more moral decline than today? 
Why are we still experiencing mass shooting? Because we know a whole lot more than we actually do. And I think God's going to hold us accountable, not for what we did not know, but for what we do know. You see, God's not looking to judge us because of what we didn't know. He's going to hold us accountable for what we knew because, and I underline it in my Bible, because it says, you knew all this. You knew this. You see, why is God coming down on this king? Because he knew better. Have you ever looked at your children and they did something wrong? And you're like, you know better to do that. Why? Because you taught them. You put time and energy and yet they still did the wrong thing. And God here is judging this king and God's not going to hold us guiltless either because God has given us his word. Here's the thing. I meet Christians all the time. Oh, I just want to go deeper, pastor. I just want to go deeper. And I stop and I ask them the question, hey, before you go deeper, what have you not applied that you already know? Let's go back. I don't think we need to move forward until we go back. See, Daniel took him back before he moved forward. You see, we are educated far above our level of obedience in the church today. So it's time that we say, God, help me to not just know it, but to apply it. Because that's where the impact is. A lot of people today, they have a big idea, and they think the big idea is going to equal impact. No, that's not how it works. There's a young entrepreneur. He's got this great idea. It's the next big thing. And he thinks, man, I'm going to make it. No, idea and impact is not how it's going to happen. It's idea, implementation, impact. It's the same with the believer. It's we take God's word, we put it in our hearts, we let it start working in us and through us, and that changes us. You see, the Bible says that old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. When you became a Christ follower, God changed your nature. The nature of a wolf is to eat sheep. The nature of a sheep is to eat grass. So when you see a Christian who's not living like a Christian, we need to step back and say, wait a minute, was your nature changed? Did God ever change your nature? Because the nature of a wolf is to eat a sheep. The nature of a sheep is to eat grass. But yet we see sheep that aren't living like sheep. They're living like wolves. And then we step back and say, wait a minute. Have you actually received the gospel? Has God's transforming work, is it at work in your life? And so we need to step back and look at this word of warning and say, God, what are you doing in my heart? So before we can move forward, let's step back. Because God wants us to do something. He wants us to grow into something. So this word of warning is to help us. It's to help us because they were losing the battle. And the battle was not outside the gates. It was within their heart. You see, if you're going to win, you have to win within. That's where it starts. You see, God says the most important thing in your life is your heart. Because out of it flows the issues of life. Everything comes through the heart. So if we're not guarding our heart, what we put in it, what we surround ourselves by... I can tell you this, if I start surrounding myself with people that do wrong things, I'm going to be heavily influenced to do wrong things. I'm going to be heavily influenced to be the wrong thing. And so we need to be careful and say, hey, God, I want to be careful about what I have around me. And sometimes we say, well, you know what? I just didn't see that coming. No, we're, we don't have that excuse, church. The Bible says in Proverbs 27, 12, the prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. You see, there are things we know better, but we don't do it. I mean, we, we know the simplest things. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. But yet too often we're guilty of not doing it. And I know this message has been heavy at this point. But the third and final time that God writes with his own hand is found in John 8. We're running out of time, but I got to go to John 8. Because this message doesn't start there. It can't end here. It can't end at this point. 
It can't end with us feeling the weight of our sin on us. It can't end with us feeling this guilt and this shame. And shame makes us want to hide. It makes us want to run from the church, to run from our life group, to run from his word, to not seek God in prayer. So we can't end here, church. It can't stop here. We see that God's hand is in history. We see that God, he gave commandments for our conduct. We see that God wrote on the wall a warning. But then I see this beautiful picture of God once again with his own hand writing something. And in John 8, the Pharisees brought a woman who had been immoral. She had been caught in an adulterous affair. And the Pharisees, they grab her out of the act and they throw her before Jesus. She lands in the dirt, barely covering herself. And she's lying there in shame, tears coming down her face. And what does Jesus do? While the crowd around her is picking up stones because by right, by the right, by God's hand that he wrote the commandments, they had law said to stone her. That's what the code, the commandments said. And so they begin to pick up stones and Jesus, he he does something unimaginable. He gets down. You think, is he going to grab a rock? What's he going to do? What's Jesus going to do? What's he reaching for? And he starts with his finger. He begins to write something. With his own hand, he begins to write in the dust. Here's a woman with all the shame, with all the guilt, with everything that she had done wrong. And there she is, humiliated before everybody. And there's Jesus, perfect, spotless son of God, who's going to die on a cross for her sin. And there he is. What is he doing? Is he writing? Is he writing her sin? What's he doing? And as he's writing, something starts happening. The longer he writes, people start dropping their stones. He writes some more. And then one by one, the Bible says the oldest from the youngest begins to leave the crowd. They walk away. We don't know what Jesus was writing. Was he writing their names and their sins? Or was he writing simply that I love this woman? I love this woman. I love this woman. I love this woman. I'm going to die for this woman. We don't know what he was writing. And honestly, it doesn't matter. Because Jesus was connecting with his father. And his father in Genesis chapter 2 stooped down in the dust. And the Bible says he formed man out of the dust. And here Jesus is connecting with the father. And he's doing what the father did. And Jesus is saying, once again, I'm writing in the dust. Dust symbolizes humanity. And he was writing. And I want you to understand, yes, God gives commandments for our conduct. God gives a warning on the wall. But I want you to see that grace is found in the ground. Amen, church? There's grace in the ground. That as Jesus began to write, he was writing grace. She didn't deserve it. She didn't do anything to earn it. But God said, when, when everybody had left, Jesus looked at the woman and he looked at this woman. And he said, hey, where are your accusers? And she says, they're gone. And he says, I don't condemn you either. Jesus had every right to condemn this woman. She ignored all the warnings. It was clearly written. She had the Torah, the first five books of the New Testament. She had the Pentateuch. She had it. She knew what she was supposed to do. And she went against it. Like I've done. And like you've done. And we're guilty. We're guilty of death. Each and every one of us. No one person better than the next. I don't care if whose car was nicer in this auditorium. I don't care whose bank account's bigger, whose house is bigger, who has it all together. We all were worthy of the same death. And Jesus, when he had every right to pick up a stone and end us, instead he gets down in the dust and he begins to write. And he begins to pour out his grace because there's always grace in the ground. So if you find yourself in the dirt this week, just remember, that's where the grace is. That's where God ended it. He didn't stop in Daniel 5. He said, this, my hand in history is not done. 
I cannot finish here. I must continue this story. And aren't you glad he didn't leave the work unfinished? He continued the work and the grace is in the ground. We need to celebrate that we have grace this morning. We need to celebrate that, yes, there is a code for our conduct. We need to celebrate, yes, that there is a warning on the wall. But God's grace is found in the crown and we don't deserve it. And that's exactly what grace is. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. And if you're here this morning and you've never tasted the grace... You've never experienced the freedom that only God can give. Maybe you're like me in the beginning of that story and you find yourself gasping for air. You just want something that'll satisfy. Nothing else matters, but you're looking for that thing. And you keep pulling down other people, pulling down your job. You keep pulling down your marriage. You keep pulling down your children. You keep pulling down thinking they're going to help you give you what your soul wants. But only God's grace can fill it. And this morning, would you taste the grace? You say, Pastor, I'm so down. I'm so discouraged. I feel like a failure. I feel like I've messed up. So with this woman. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you because there's grace here. At Southridge Church, there's grace here. You're at a church with a bunch of failures. I thought about all my friends. All my friends usually are failures. But we just don't stay down because we know there's a grace that God's given to us. That when we are at our worst, at our wit's end, we don't think we can make it. That God's grace, it shows up and it lifts us up. And we find that we can go on because the Bible says his grace is sufficient. And we found his all-sufficient grace. We tasted and we said, it's good. I want some more. And each Sunday we come back and we say, I need some more grace. But you don't have to wait to Sunday. If you find yourself in the dirt tomorrow morning, then get on your face and say, God, I'm in the dirt, but I know there's some grace down here. My face is in the ground, but there's some grace here. I've lost my job, but there's some grace here. I've lost my marriage, but there's some grace here. God, I've lost some grounds with my kids, but there's some grace here. God, I've messed up and there's some sin here, but God says where sin did abound, God's grace did much more abound. That's where God's grace is. So God can do a work. Let's all stand. If you're here this morning, you've never tasted the grace. You've never seen the miraculous power of God at work in your life. Understand this morning that there is a grace for you. There is a strength for you. No matter the sin, his forgiveness is greater. No matter the struggle, his grace is there. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, you say, Pastor, I need that grace this morning. I'm dealing with something today. I don't know how I'm going to make it. There's this big problem. There's this big obstacle. And I need to taste the grace. God, I've sinned and I need some grace this morning. Is that you? Would you lift up your hand? Nobody's looking. Let me pray for you. You say, I need that grace. I see that hand and that hand and that hand. There are people all over this auditorium. They're tasting the grace and forgiveness of God that he offers. I don't have it. I don't deal it. God does. Jesus, through his son, we've been made clean. And so we have forgiveness. Or maybe you're here and you say, I've never, I've never given my life to Christ. I want to follow him wholeheartedly. I want to turn from my sin. I want to follow Jesus. I want to taste it for the first time. Maybe you know today that if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. And today you're saying, I need Jesus more than anything. I want to receive him as my savior. We call it in the church world getting born again. It's where we accept Jesus as our Lord. We dethrone self in our heart. And maybe today that's the decision you need to make. And with no one looking around, you say, today, I want to ask Jesus into my life. I want to be born anew, born again from the inside out. I want to win within. Is that you? Would you slip up your hand? Is that you? You want to receive Jesus Christ this morning? 
Anybody like that? If at any moment you say, God's working on my heart and I want to speak to somebody about it, you can find me after the service. I'd love to pray with you and show you how you can know that Jesus is your Savior and you can taste the grace. But right now, we need to sing and worship God. Let's sing this song. It's called Revelation Song. Let's sing it together as a song of worship that we've tasted the grace.